Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our pool campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Good morning. How are you today? Well, there's like seven of us who are really good today. It's so good to see you on this half-term Sunday. Uh, I hope that you're doing well and that you've had a great half-term and the, the kids go back tomorrow. Oh, was there a whoop there? That's like the most ungodly parent ever. Woof, yeah, get them out of my house. And uh, Is Rachel Lockett in here? She's in kids, is she? Okay. Well, we'll see if she shows up in a little while. We want to pray for her son, Kai, and before he goes off for another eye operation. If you've got your Bibles, open them to John 4 this morning. We're going to be sitting in John 4. And um, just again, want to add my welcome um, to Martin Nangoli. Man, isn't he such a beautiful bloke? My gosh, he's got one of those faces that you could kiss. I said in the first service, he's got one of those faces you can slap, but he hasn't. He's got a kissable face. We love this guy so much. Uh, Doing a tremendous work in Uganda. And uh, if you haven't heard his story before, come tonight. Inspirational story, how Jesus has caught hold of his heart and how God transformed his life. Uh, Uganda holds a special place in my heart. It's a beautiful country, a beautiful nation, beautiful people. I haven't been there for a little while, but last time I went... I mean, generally, I'm not allowed to go into missional context for Sunny Hill because I always make the country worse when I'm there. Um, I'm just not the typical missionary. I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. And there was a, an occasion where we were in a, a church and uh, we were preaching in the forest somewhere, like up a mountain somewhere. And we were going to be doing this leaders conference. And Martin said the conference will start at like half nine. And so we get there at quarter past nine, you know, very Western kind of, uh, you know, punctual attitude, and we get there, and at 11 o'clock, still no one had shown up, and I remember I was saying, like, Martin, is this the line? He says, yeah, they'll be here for lunchtime. I was like, cool, I think I'm an African, because that's like my body clock right there. Like, I'm never there in the morning, but if you say lunch, I'm there. Um, and it's kind of interesting, because in this uh, church uh, context, they'd set up all these streamers, and it was a beautiful kind of decor, and they're just, to celebrate our revival, the hall filled up, and there was all these streamers kind of just flowing on the ceiling. The ceiling was quite low. And uh, the church there had this amazing song where they sing about the Israelites exiting Egypt. And at that point in the song, they get the chair above their head or whatever they can grab, children, clothes, whatever. And they will just walk around, march around the room, kind of just waving the chair. I mean, I think we should definitely start doing that in the praise part of Sunny Hill. So this is how we party. Just grab your children and and grab chairs and stuff. And and, uh, I was with Scott at the time. And I said to Scott, I said, you should totally take part in that. I said, you should definitely do that. He says, oh, do you think? I was like, yeah, you should do it. So I remember he grabbed a chair and he put it above his head. And even though Scott's quite small, he seems probably quite taller than a lot of the Ugandans. The chair gets tangled up in the streamers on the ceiling. And, I, and he can't tell. So I'm like, just go for it, Scott. And, and then all of a sudden he starts moving and he's pulling all the streamers off the ceiling. And you're feeling like, is this the glory of God departing? It wasn't. It was just loads of Christmas decorations just falling on people, basically. And uh, there's another occasion, uh, the lunchtime of that conference the day after. Uh, I was kind of just doing this bonga challenge. And the bonga is where you do fist pumps with all the kids and young people like that. And it's really fun um, until kind of bigger people get involved. Then it starts to hurt. And uh, I was outside on a lunch break and I was bongering all these people and it was so good. And, and slowly the, 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 the kids got bigger and bigger and bigger until it felt like there were grown men coming out of the woods to do this bonga with me. And so they're bongering, bongering, bongering. And so because I've kind of got a competitive spirit, I'm like, yeah, you know, I can punch hard too. So I started 
start punching all these hands, not really paying attention to what I'm punching. Then all of a sudden, this little kid, about five years old, puts his face through the crowd, and I smash him in the lip. It was awesome. His face just, his lip just exploded. And it was that moment where I'm thinking, God, this is why you've called me to England, where this stuff just doesn't happen. And, and like his, his face is, he's kind of flown back and the whole crowd are like, ooh. <laughs> uh, and like this crazy Mzungu, this white man has come and beaten one of our children. And this kid's kind of getting himself together, very teary and all that kind of stuff. I think, what do I do to pacify this child? And one of them says, oh, that's the pastor's son. I'm like, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. So I look in my bag and I've got Haribo. Thank you, Jesus, for Haribo. So I'm saying, listen, if you don't tell your dad about this, you can have all the Haribo in my bag. And uh, there was multiple funny things that happened, but Uganda, just a special place. So I would encourage you to come tonight, uh, to come and hear from Martin, just a quality guy, quality speaker, great leader, and just a real influencer in that nation. So just a quality guy. Uh, Open your Bibles to John 4. Over the last four weeks, uh, we have been uh, looking at invitation uh, because we believe that God is calling us to be a church that invites people, uh, invites people in multiple ways, invites people into our homes, into our lives, invites people to alpha courses, invites people into a relationship with Jesus, but also invites people to church. And the reason that we're inviting people is because we worship an inviting God. We worship a God who has his heart set on bringing invitation to people who are broken. It's interesting, in John 4, Jesus says this in verse 35. He says, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. Jesus speaking into an agricultural context, a farming context. He says, you know the saying, this is the principle. You put a seed in the ground, and after about four months, there's going to be some sort of crop that you can harvest. That's the saying. People just said, yeah, that, that, that's right. Jesus says, but I say, wake up and look around. So typically, the harvest season works this way. You put a seed in the ground, you wait a little while, you give it the nutrients, the water that the seed needs, and then eventually it comes to a point where the harvest is ready. And so maybe there's this inclination at times where we talk about in the context of evangelism, some people sow and some people harvest, and we say, you know, just let the seed take. But Jesus says, look, this is what we say, seed time and harvest, four months between. But Jesus says, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. Last week, I spoke about the fact that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That the harvest field is massive. The mission ground is huge, but the workers are few. But then Jesus says, therefore, go. He tells the church to go. So you are the workers. But in this passage, Jesus says, not only is the harvest field plentiful and massive, the harvest field is ripe for bringing in. The harvest is ready. And he says this, just in case we don't understand kind of the connection he's making. He says, the harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people bought to eternal life. So Jesus says for many years there have been seeds that have been sown into the lives and hearts of people. But he's saying now the harvest is ready for bringing in. Now, often as a church, we go, oh, we love the idea of harvest because harvest just sounds so Pentecostal and it preaches so well. Oh, we love the harvest. We love the idea of the harvest. But the truth is, the harvest is always harder work than the sowing. 
Sowing seed is hard work for sure because you've got to put the seed in the ground. But actually going in to collect the crop, it's a whole different ballgame altogether. Actually, it's backbreaking stuff. It's stuff that requires your, your sweat, your effort, and your energy to take the weight of the harvest and bring it home. But Jesus says, what joy awaits both the planter, the one who sowed the seed, and the harvester alike. And he says in verse 38, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you'll get to gather the harvest together. My encouragement to you this morning is that there are people in your world who are ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. There are people that maybe you haven't invested in relationally, so you should be doing that as well. There are people where you haven't sown or scattered seed who are ready and ripe to receive an invitation, maybe to church, maybe to Alpha Course, maybe into a relationship with Jesus. But either way, Jesus is saying, and I believe this still extends to us, is that the harvest is plentiful and the harvest is ready. It is ripe for bringing in. Now, why is Jesus even talking about the harvest? It's an interesting thing for Jesus to keep speaking about this harvest. Well, if we look at the context, we see something really interesting work out. Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving Judea and returning to Galilee, and they're going through Samaria. Samaria was a questionable place with questionable people, according to the Jews. The Jews did not get on with Samaritans, and Samaritans did not get on with Jews. Jews thought Samaritans were half-bred and just like uh, not really Jewish blood. And so that's why when Jesus talks about the good Samaritan, it's a very controversial story because Jesus said, no, this Samaritan was good and that he helped somebody. But in this context, Jesus is passing through Samaria, this place where they're considered to be enemies. And uh, he comes to this well in the noonday sun. And at this well, he kind of encounters this woman This woman who was retrieving water from this well in the middle of the hottest point of the day. It's an interesting picture. Jesus, this this man, this God, this, this rabbi, encounters this Samaritan woman, this perfect savior who kind of had it together, encounters, and we'll see in a moment, this dysfunctional woman who is insecure and has got loads of stuff going on in her life. In fact, the very fact that she happens to be at the well in the middle of the day speaks of a sense that she is shying away from publicity. She's shying away from the public space because there's shame or guilt or something in her life. And Jesus comes to this well and he sees that she is uh, drawing water from the well and he says, please give me a drink in verse 7. Please give me a drink. At this point, the disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman, in verse 9 we read, was surprised. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. So on the one hand, Jesus is a Jew, this woman's a Samaritan. So there's that social etiquette broken. On another hand, uh, uh, Jesus was a man, this was a woman. That's another social etiquette boundary crossed. On another hand, Jesus was a rabbi and this woman was a Samaritan. So therefore, there shouldn't really have been much conversation. And so when Jesus asked for some water, she's kind of surprised. She says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus says, if only you knew the gift God has for you. It's an interesting idea. If only you knew the gift that God has for you. If only you knew the plans and the purposes that God has written over your life and over your destiny. If only you knew the gift that God has for you. I wonder sometimes if Jesus is saying that over us, like, guys, if only you knew If only you knew what I have for your life. Right now, you might be walking through chaos and carnage, but if only you knew the gift that I have for you. He says, if you knew that, 
and you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Straight away there, we think, oh, this living water must be a spirit thing, and it is. But actually, the word for living in its original text just means spring water. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you would have asked me, I would have given you the best water that the earth can provide. And so she's thinking that he's speaking still about this tangible well. She acknowledges an obvious fact in verse 11. She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is really deep. Where would you get this living water? Where can you get this spring water if you have nothing to draw from? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the poster boys of the Old Testament that the Samaritan and the Jews looked up to. Jacob sourced this well and made this well and gave this well to his people. Now Jesus is saying, listen, I can give you a better water than this well can produce. And she's saying, hey, are you saying that you're really better than this Jacob? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals that they enjoyed? And verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus takes this well moment, this water moment, where at this point they're on the same page talking about a physical sense of nourishment and water. And says, hey, listen, if you knew who I was and the gift that I have, you would ask me for living water and I would give you living water. But it wouldn't be water that flows from the outside in. It would be water that is deposited on the inside and then flows from the inside out. And it's kind of interesting because Jesus says, anyone who drinks from this well is going to thirst again. And that makes sense if you're thinking about physical water because whilst water quenches a thirst for maybe an hour or two, it doesn't quench your thirst for life. But Jesus is speaking about a bigger issue here. You see, what you don't understand about this woman is that she's got a crazy history and she's got a crazy past, like multiple relationships that don't look good. And here she is in the middle of the day and Jesus is using this picture of a well as a metaphor to speak to her circumstances. He's not talking about the water that she's drawing in this moment. He is talking about the fact that there is a well in her life that she keeps coming to every single day, hoping that by drawing from this well, it's going to bring some sort of sustenance and, and value and some sort of purpose. But every day she's drawing and every day she's drinking from this supply, but it's not addressing those inner issues. So there's a well in her life that she keeps coming to and it's not providing the nourishment that she's looking for. And Jesus is literally standing before her saying, listen, listen, if you ask me for water, I'll I'll give you living water that bubbles up. It's like a bubbling spring that is on the inside of you and it flows right from now into eternal life. It is so much more significant. And this woman obviously says, please, Give me this water. Like my whole life I've been looking for something. My whole life I've been looking for meaning. My whole life I've been looking to kind of answer these deepest longings of my soul. And now you're suggesting there's a supply and a provision that can speak to my deepest need. She's like, come on, let me have it, please. Jesus then really blinds Hyder with this request. He says, go and get your husband. I mean, it's an interesting thought. Go and get your husband. She says this in verse 17, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. And it's an interesting thing for Jesus to acknowledge. You're absolutely right. Well, of course she's right. She knows her situation. Of course you're right. You're right, you say, when you say you don't have a husband, because you don't have a husband. But then Jesus brings an an amazing intimate word of knowledge. He says this, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. 
Like, you spoke the truth when you say you don't have a husband because the truth is you have multiple sexual relationships in multiple directions and the person you're currently kind of living with is not your husband. Jesus is essentially saying, like, this is the well. This is the problem. You're looking for relational meaning and value and you're looking in the wrong places. And, And the thing that kind of just amazes me is here you are with this desperate housewife who obviously has issues stemming from her past and there is a whole heap of relational dysfunction in her world that she's tried to address that deepest need by looking to the wrong supply and she's done this day in day out day in day out day in day out and Jesus knows all of that Jesus knows her circumstance Jesus knows her situation Jesus knows her history he knows her past yet he stands before her still and extends an invitation I don't don't know if you heard me there. Jesus knows the worst thing about this person. He knows the most secretive thing that she's trying to shy away from, the thing that she doesn't want people to see. When she comes to the well and other women are there, she's feeling their glances and the stares. She's feeling the weight of guilt and shame and just a judgment on all the mistakes she's made. So she comes in the middle of the day. She's trying to hide this stuff, but Jesus reveals this stuff that has been concealed and before he even addresses it, says, listen, if you ask me, I want to give you living water. I want to speak to the deepest part of you because if only you knew the gift that I have for you. Maybe some of you here today don't know Jesus yet and I say yet because it's kind of important because my hope is that even today you'll say, maybe you'll realize the gift that God has for you. Maybe you've come here today because you've been dragged by somebody or you just felt like, I need to get to church. I don't know why you're here, but I love that you're here. I celebrate the fact that you're here. But let me just say this. Jesus knows the worst thing about you. And yet even this morning, he stands before you and he says, if you just ask, I want to come into your life and I want to change it. And it's not so much a change that happens on the outside, which is good news. It's not like he's just looking to address the the sinful habits in our life. He wants to address the inside, the inner world. He wants to bring transformation on the inside that then affects the outside. You know, all other religions, it's on the basis of if I can just make myself better for this God, if I can just do behavior modification on the outside, then I'm kind of going to get to this place where I earn something of forgiveness or, or oneness with God. But in Christianity, it's a sense of, hey, you know, you've got no hope if that's your plan. Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no hope. So it really doesn't matter how bad you are today. And, and, and sometimes I think, sometimes we think that I can't go to church yet because... I've got a whole heap of junk going on in my life. I can't come to church yet because I've got this toxic relationship in my life. I can't go to church yet because there's all this deceit and dishonesty in my life. And, and like, you know what? I, I, I'd be a hypocrite. Listen, if you're a hypocrite, you're going to fit right in here. This place is full of them. Because I'm one as well. I'm the woman at the well. Like, it, it, I may not have had the same dysfunction, but I still fell well short of the glory of God, which is perfection, by the way. And Jesus stood before me, darling, if only you knew the gift that God has for you, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water that speaks to the inner deficit and dysfunction in your world, and you would have been transformed from glory to glory. Now, now it's interesting because Jesus is here coming from Judea to Galilee, and he's in Samaria. But why is he in Samaria? Look at verse 4 if you've got your Bibles. Verse 4, I think, is one of the verses that we always overlook in this passage. It said this, verse 3, so he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse 4, 
Can someone read the next two words they've got just to do a bit of group participation? What are the next two words? Or three words? He had to. He had to? Wait there. He, he had to? He had to go? He had to go through Samaria? Like, really? He had to go through Samaria? It, he didn't have to go through Samaria. The truth is, it was weird that he was going through Samaria. Other Jews went around Samaria. They wouldn't go through Samaria, but verse 4 tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Let me tell you why. Because Sunny Hill Church did not come with the vision, ambition to live for the one that isn't here yet. God did. (laughs) God knew that there was a one that existed in Samaria that needed an invitation into a life-changing relationship. And so for him, it wasn't an optional thing. He had an appointment to keep. Jesus says elsewhere in Scripture, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father saying. And so there's this sense that Jesus in this moment, he has to go through Samaria. Why? Because God is leading him through Samaria. It's an interesting thing when I think about this. Is Why did Jesus have to? How did he know? How did he know? Well, it's kind of interesting when you think about it like this, that <clears throat> Jesus would have read the same Old Testament that we read. Like when you read stuff in the Old Testament, that's exactly the same thing that Jesus would have read when he was studying the scriptures. And he would have read Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus even came. He would have read the book Isaiah. In fact, we can see in Luke that he quotes the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me to preach. Goodness, like Jesus knew the Old Testament and he spoke the Old Testament, which makes me kind of start to imagine some weird stuff. That when he reads the messianic prophecies, in other words, all the words that speak about Jesus before Jesus came, when he reads one of those, he knew that it applied to him. Now, I think that's cool in many ways, but I also think to be Jesus in that situation, it also feels really disturbing because... Listen, this is what Isaiah says about the saviour of the world that's coming. He says, he was despised and rejected. Jesus, imagine Jesus reading this. A man of sorrows, acquainted with a deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way and he was despised and we did not give one or did not care. Give one is my interpretation. We did not give one. That's what the Hebrew says. Didn't give one. Verse four, yet it was our weaknesses he carried It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Imagine Jesus casting his eyes over this book, Isaiah, thinking, this is me. I've got to carry their weaknesses. I've got to carry their sorrows. I've got to live under the weight of their iniquity, of their dysfunction. It goes on, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, like a judgment on him, a punishment for his own sins. But verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was broken for our sins. He was beaten. Just imagine Jesus reading this. Beaten? So we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Bearing in mind that Isaiah is speaking this 700 years before Jesus has come. Verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. Like Isaiah is bringing this messianic revelation to the Messiah that's coming. Every single person like sheep has wandered away. Jesus knew that when he gets up and preaches in Luke 15 and tells the story 
of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one goes away and the shepherd who goes after the sheep. Jesus knew that Isaiah said this about this coming Messiah. Jesus knew that, yet in this moment, he's thinking, I think, when he goes to Samaria, this is part of what I do. I go and look for the ones who have strayed away. The ones in their own ignorance and maybe stubbornness at times have chosen a path that I don't have for them, even though there's a better plan for them, that they go and pursue their ungodly desires. Yet Jesus reads in Isaiah 53, like he's going to carry their sinfulness, their brokenness, and he's going to take the punishment that is due for them. He's going to take it on himself. He's going to experience the separation from God so that we don't have to. And he knows this when he's speaking, Luke 15, speaking about the prodigal son who comes home. And he speaks about the coin that he's lost and essentially talking about the one that got away the one that strayed so in John 4 4 he had to go it's an interesting thing because Isaiah 53 that Jesus would have read speaks about who Jesus is going to be 700 years before Jesus became it but then in Isaiah 54 that Jesus would have read we read this in verse 2 so the next chapter in Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came Isaiah prophesying this enlarge your house Build an addition, spread out your home, and spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. And, and the word here that Isaiah is bringing to the Jewish people is saying, you need to get ready, you need to expand your house, you need to stretch out the tent pegs, you, you need to increase your vision, because this thing that was once exclusive to the Jews is now going to be extended to everyone who aren't Jews. The, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the Samaritans. Like you've got to make your house bigger. You've got to make your vision bigger. You've got to stretch out because the, the, this, this good news is too good for Jerusalem. It's going to go further and further and further. I wonder today if you understand that about the ethos of this house at Sunny Hill. The ethos of this house is that our house is big enough for everyone, regardless of their past. Regardless of their dysfunction, whether it's fixed or not, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of their skin color, regardless of character dysfunctions, regardless of sinfulness, this house is big enough to hold you in. And some of you are like, really? Because there's a whole lot of people I don't like out there. I get it. (laughs) I get it. Living and doing life with people is one of the hardest things. Yet we see this example in Christ. He had to go. An invitation had to be extended. Because of all we do as church is we speak to the choir. If all we do as church is testify to the already saved, then there's countless women at wells in the noonday sun who are waiting for an invitation that God wants to bring into their world. And, and you, you can say, well, Jesus, can't you do it? He did 2,000 years ago. He's an inviting God. He came himself. But now the game plan is the church have got to go. You don't believe me? Look at Isaiah 55, the next chapter. Jesus would have read it. Isaiah 55. We see this, and it speaks of this moment at the well. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Now, obviously, I'm not saying that Jesus definitely thought of this passage when he's reaching out to this woman. 
But without doubt, these chapters would have carved out Jesus' understanding of his, the calling and mandate on his life. That when he goes to this place that he has to go, Samaria, this woman that he finds, he extends an invite. And it's not an invitation that comes in relation to money, because that is not the thing. It is the person that simply responds to the invitation to come and drink. See, maybe today you've come and you think, well, what do I have to do? Honestly, nothing. Nothing. You may be skint. Join the club. You may have made a whole heap of errors. You may carry very little authority and influence in your own world. You may not even bring credibility to the party this morning. But it's cool. Because all the Bible says is call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Maybe some of you already saved this morning. You carry a huge issue of anxiety around your salvation. Listen, either the Bible's true or it isn't. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Paul says, confess, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Like these are the things. It's an issue of faith to choose to put your confidence instead of the, the well of the world, which doesn't supply your deepest need, to put your faith and confidence and all of your eggs in the basket are saying, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything there is to know about faith. I'm not the greatest apologist. I don't know how even I reason this stuff with all the stuff I currently believe with evolution. But all I know is Jesus, I'm broken and I keep coming to the same well every day and it's not supplying the need. So Jesus, would you give me your living water? Jesus, would you come and live within me? Jesus, would you come and do what only you can do? Forget the behavior modification because that will come. I get sick to death of spirit police in the church trying to correct people. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Of course, we should coach and we should mentor, but it's always in the context of grace and truth, not just truth and judgment. There should be correction, but ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says in Romans, it's his kindness that leads me to repentance. It's not his judgment. It's his kindness. It's the overwhelming grace and goodness of God that compels me to change my behavior. But you know what? I, I was like, I think I was in my second year of Bible college before I realized how broken I was. And like maybe today you think, oh, I've got it all together. Well, that's damn, you may think that. But really the truth is you're probably just fronting for a whole lot of dysfunction that sits in your life so far. And the invitation today is just to get real, just to say, come on, there's a well that doesn't run dry. There's a well that is so deep into the goodness of God that you can draw from it every single day for the rest of your life and it will well up to eternal life. That this thing isn't just a temporary supply that speaks to your physical need right now. It speaks to your deepest spiritual need for meaning and purpose and everything that you're looking for. Amen? So Jesus had to go. Why did Jesus have to go? Because he knew who he was. He knew he had to stretch out his understanding that this wasn't just for the Jews, but this was going to go further. And he knew that an invitation, you've got to know, you've got to grow, and you've got to go. And it's in this context that the disciples return from getting food in John 4 and come back to them and say, hey, you must be hungry. And Jesus says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God. That's the thing that feeds me. And then Jesus speaks after ministering to this woman. He says, you know the saying, four months between seed and harvest. When Jesus speaks about the fields that are ripe, 
He's speaking in the context of this woman that he's met at the well. No one saw that field. No one saw the harvest. Jesus isn't saying it's not like we even came through with our ministry band and kind of planted some seeds a few months before. We just rocked up and in the present of this moment and this, this need that was so evident, we were able to bring in the harvest that God had. Like, who is it you're looking for when it comes to invitation? Are you looking for people that it seems to make sense? Because let me tell you, there's probably a whole heap of people in your world who are ripe and ready to receive the invitation to this living well. But you've got to stretch your vision. You've got to see bigger than reason and common sense. In fact, I love what goes on. After he's explained this harvest situation, this is still John 4, verse 39. This is amazing. Listen to this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. So this woman who Jesus administered to, to her need, she had, we read early on in John, left her vessel and her rope at the well, run back to the village that she was from, and she says, hey, I think I've met the saviour of the world. I think I've met the one I've been waiting for, the one that gives meaning and purpose. I think, I, I think he's there because he knew everything about me, and I didn't tell him anything about me, but he knew it. And she draws a crowd of Samaritans, and they come back, and, and they say, uh, from the village, believed in Jesus, because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, because why wouldn't they? This saviour's amazing. Like there's kindness in his eyes. Like in a world of judgment and hate and division, there's something so good and kind about him. They want him to stay. So he stayed for two days. Verse 41, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And it's this bit I love, verse 42. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he's indeed the savior of the world. This is the power of invitation. To understand that you may go into the broken places of humanity. You may even just go into your workplace and see it all there. And extend an invitation to saying, listen, you know, I can't, I don't know all the answers that you're asking me about religion. And I don't know all the answers about Brexit. Who knows the answers about Brexit, for goodness sake. You know, I don't know all the answers about North Korea and all of the dysfunction in this world. I, I don't know what I think on Donald Trump. And I don't know what I feel about global warming. I don't have all the answers. But what I do have is a story. <laughs> What I do have is my story. It's my testament. Like, one day I was going about business and then, like, just Jesus just rocked up and just brought something that on the inside just changed me. And you got to come. You got to come. And then their testimony is well, we came because you told us to come and we were inspired by your story, but now, now we believe for ourselves because we've heard. Is, is your vision big enough? Is the house big enough? Is your heart big enough to go, oh, it doesn't make sense, but I know that the invitation, it doesn't just live in Jerusalem, it extends beyond the city. It doesn't just stop here, it begins here. It, it's, 
whatever it takes, I've got to go. There has to be a commitment in the people to say, we will continue to stretch and to expand. And if that looks like adding more services, we'll do it. And if it looks like planting more campuses, we'll do it. Because we've seen it, we've read it. There has to be a, a paradigm shift where we go. I understand now that, and this is the premise of this woman, is that the, the invited has to become the inviter. That's the bottom line, is that those who were once far off are brought close, but it's not just good to stay close. We then have to invite, we have to bring, and we have to go. And so we can know Jesus and we can understand the theories of growing things, but unless there's an invitation that follows that process, then it's, it's not really faith at all, it's religion. It's understanding that, like, I don't understand the people I'm trying to reach, and I don't get their problem and dysfunction, but I do believe I have a Savior that gets it, <laughs> that stands before them in the, the heat of their chaos and the heat of their carnage and says, look, if only you knew the gift of God that God has for you, if only you knew that. I just wonder, like, over the next few weeks, especially in the run-up to Christmas, can we take that... Can we take the, 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 the call to invite seriously, to understand, hey, God, I see that you're an inviting God in both senses. You're a God who invites, but you're a God who is sublime and so kind. You're so inviting. It's like, I understand that. And so we're going to change things up over the next four weeks because we, we want to speak to some of the, the, the challenges that we're seeing. And we, we, wanna, we kind of want to hit that head on in a loving way and so what we're going to do over the next four weeks, and uh, Ben, do you want to come up and get on that piano? Otherwise, I'll be here for too long. This is the conclusion part now. You know when the keyboard gets up, that's it. It's all good. Is that, like, I don't, I was, I've been reading a couple of books recently on, on just the, the downward trend of mental health, namely depression, suicidal thoughts, and and anxiety. In fact, I was reading in one article that 27% of people under 24 now are regularly battling the temptation to commit suicide. And it's, it's, it's insane. And this is, this is like, this isn't Christian research. This is science. This is like world research. This is like secular scientists. And, and like, it exists in the world, but the truth is it exists in the church as well. And just looking at like the suicide rates around Christmas and all this kind of stuff. And we can, we, we can to a measure say, no, instead I'm, I'm just gonna sing this is how we party at church on Sunday. And I love the praise, I love it. Like it's so key to what we do, but there has to come a point where then we go, okay, in light of the invitation we've received, we now become an inviter. And, and, and like I, just thinking and talking with Louise is just like this, idea that more and more research is suggesting that antidepressants aren't even touching the spot of this deficit and dysfunction and even like secular people now and people who are studying this stuff are saying what if anxiety was never the problem what if depression was never the problem but what if it's a sign that there is a problem what if depression in and of itself isn't the source of what's wrong it's a sign that there's something wrong what happens if these things are only flaring up in our mind because there is a lack? There is a lack of something in our world. And 
So over the next four weeks, we're going to get into some of that stuff. And we think it's going to be a great opportunity for you to just get courageous in invitation. To go to people who don't just look like they need it, but just understand this harvest may be right before me and I might not even see it, but I'm going to extend an invitation. And so this morning when you leave, you're going to receive a little pack of seven cards, but you can take as many as you want. And simply all it says on the front is there's a place for you. Um, and you'll remember the message that I bought a couple of weeks ago. That's my seat. Uh, and the idea is, is there's a place for you. There's a seat for you. We're going to welcome you with open arms. And then the details on the back about where we are, when we meet, and a little note box where you can write in this box, this is my name, this is my number, so that the person can meet up with you before church and come in or whatever. But my, my, my encouragement to you is just to be bold and brave. And actually, you, you, you might not get the outcome that you want and people may say no, but my encouragement to you is to be like this Samaritan woman, just to leave <laughs> whatever it is that you're focused on right now and go after people with an invitation. Hey, I've met somebody who knows everything about me and still yet invites me. And so I just think the next few weeks could be really significant for us in the run-up to Christmas. And so we've called the series Finding Your Mind because the alternative is to lose it <laughs> and we think God wants you to find it in fact Paul says Romans 12 don't conform to the pattern of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind there's a sense that as we find a renewedness in our mind and a sense of freshness that there's a transformation that takes place and I want to encourage you guys to take those invitations and to bring people and some may respond some not in this moment because I am out of time let's bow our heads close our eyes thank you for listening this morning um but I want to give the opportunity for anybody here today to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news is simply this. You come with your brokenness and dysfunction. Jesus comes with his righteousness and perfection. And this divine exchange happens as you call on his name where he says, now you are made righteous in the eyes of God. And just as we read in Isaiah 53, Jesus takes on your sin and dies on the cross. And the good news is he's already died on the cross for you and me. And so there is no sin that you can blindside him with. There is no dysfunction that he can cannot manage it's, it's already paid for it is already done but you have to receive it this morning by faith and so this morning you may not have all the answers but I, we have to give an opportunity for you to receive uh, Jesus as your saviour today uh, and so I'll count to three and if that's you and, and you want to say yes to Jesus regardless of how things are going and regardless of where you're at in your headspace but you want to say I want to say yes to Jesus this morning I just simply want you to raise your hand where you are I'm not going to ask you to come down the front I'm not going to get you to do anything embarrassing just by a show of hand I want you to raise it so we can identify and catch up with you after the service so if that's you this morning I just want you to raise your hand I'm going to count to three one you want to receive the good news of Jesus there if you want to receive the salvation that's on offer this living water just raise your hand two praise God three great let's bow our heads and let us all pray this prayer together Father God I thank you for your goodness I thank you that in a world that is crazy you make sense and I thank you this morning that there's an invitation to me even in the midst of my brokenness I accept you as my saviour I accept you as my lord fill me change me from the inside out I want to live for you in Jesus name <laughs>